Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Let's pray together. Father, we are glad that we've been able to sing of your salvation that you've offered to us through Jesus Christ. We're glad to be reminded that our objective is to proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified. We are also um, thankful to be reminded that the task is not yet completed. It is ongoing, and you will complete it, and you'll use us. We pray that you'd help us now to humble ourselves before you, uh, allowing your word and your spirit to work in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A company's mission statement is to be revisited on a continual basis. It is a way of ensuring that the company is not veering off course. Now, I wish that I had put this one on the screen for you because I found this really great uh, mission statement. It's a, it's a comic strip, and these two are gathered around with coffee cups in hand, and they point up to this mission statement, and it says, whatever. And the tagline underneath is this. That's our mission statement. We wrote it on the same day we switched to decaf. You'll get it eventually. Maybe you didn't have your caffeine this morning. <laughs> a number of companies' mission statements I have recorded for you. Uh, Microsoft has a mission statement. Our mission is to empower every person and every organization on the planet to achieve more. PayPal, their mission is to get your money. I mean, uh, their mission... <laughs> wait, <laughs> says something different than that. To build the world's most convenient, secure... Cost-effective payment solution. And here's Kickstarter to help bring creative projects to life. There was one, have you heard of TED Talks? Well, if you've heard of TED Talks, they have a very brief mission statement. It's to spread information or to spread ideas. I think it was spread ideas. Google's mission statement is to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. I like Google, do you? You probably utilize it if you have any form of electrical communication. You probably utilize it regularly. It's a great source of information. Coca-Cola. Did you know that Coca-Cola has a mission statement? Here it is. To refresh the world. <laughs> to inspire moments of optimism and happiness through our brands and actions. To create value and make a difference. All right, well, there are lots of mission statements you could find all around the world about many products. Are you aware that we also have a mission statement? If you're a member, before you became a member, you read through our Constitution and Bylaws, and that would have contained that mission statement. Our mission is stated this way. The mission of Cornerstone Church shall be the edification and equipping of the saints for the promotion of evangelistic and missionary work through the public worship of God and sound proclamation of his word. Every week, we have as our aim to worship God, giving him thanks for all that he has done, celebrating the work of Jesus Christ that has purchased our salvation from sin and to seek to understand what the Bible says. As we understand what the Bible says, we are learning and being reminded of the purpose of God and specifically the purpose that God has during these days as we anticipate the completion of God's work and the consummation of God's eternal purpose. This morning, we want to look through the first two chapters of the book of Ephesians, trying to gather a sense of God's great work in his church. The book of Ephesians. We're starting a little mini-series here, the next uh, period of time, looking through the book of Ephesians, sensing God's mission, his work in the church. We want to see from these chapters this morning what God has done and what God is doing with his church. After scanning through these chapters, we want to see five elements of the mission of the church. 
the first major section we come to in the book of Ephesians, the first major consideration we encounter is that God is, God is redeeming a people for himself. God is redeeming a people for himself. This sentence from verse 3 all the way to verse 14 is one long sentence in the Greek Bible. It contains a appraising of God. It's a eulogy for God. A, a, a well-speaking of God concerning his salvific or redeeming work. In the first section, verses 3 through 6, we see the Father's sovereign purposes. Look what it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So we see Paul emphasizing the Father's sovereign purposes in these few verses. And then as he continues this very long sentence, he lets us know of the Son's sacrificial provision. Starting in verse 7, it says, In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his what? Through what? Not just his death, but a bloody death. Because the way that we're atoned for is through the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished, I love that word, which he poured out, which he graciously bestowed, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. What was that plan for the fullness of time? To unite, to unite, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So Paul is emphasizing here God's redeeming work. First, he emphasizes God's sovereign purposes. Second, Jesus' sacrificial provision. And thirdly, in verses 13 and 14, the Spirit's sealing promise. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. At the moment of salvation, when we come to know that we're sinners and that our sin will condemn us because we have a, a righteous, just, and holy God who superintends over his creation and to whom we're accountable, we realize we're sinners and we turn from our sin because we see that God, through Jesus, has provided eternal redemption. God has prov provided forgiveness. We don't have to fear God. We, we turn to God for rescue. We don't turn to God and cower. We turn to him and say, yes, yes, we need what you have to offer us. We, we receive your mercy. We receive your grace. We turn from our sin, which will condemn us, and we turn to a God who will redeem us. And at the moment of salvation, God places within us his very own spirit. The Bible says it's a sign. It's a seal. It's a signature of God saying, this one belongs to me. Don't take this one. You can't take this one. You can't touch this one. He or she belongs to me. The promised spirit. And so we see that God is redeeming a people for himself. Ladies and gentlemen, that promise will not be thwarted. God is not unable. God is not powerless. God is not pining away, hoping, hoping that plans will work out. He's a sovereign Almighty God. And when he determines to redeem a people, you know what he does? He redeems a people. Praise God. This is how we are introduced to the book of Ephesians. A powerful God redeeming a people like me. As we move a little further into the next section, Paul pens a prayer for the people of God, beginning in verse 15. But before we start reading, 
right in the middle of it, verses uh, 18 and 19, he tells us what he wants them to know. His prayer, his prayer for them is that they would have a spiritually enriched understanding. That God would quicken their spirits to understand what God and God alone does. So we have to see that. I'm going to start reading, but be looking for what Paul is praying specifically that he wants God to give us spiritual insight regarding. Verse 15 now. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Listen carefully. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know, and he has three areas he wants them to know, that you may know, first of all, what is the hope to which uh, he has been called. Secondly, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Stop right there for a second. That's an outline of the first half of the chapter. His prayer that he is uttering here, in, 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 in verse, verse 18, gives us an outline of the first main section, that he wants us to know the hope of God's calling and the riches that come our way because of the inheritance granted to us through Christ. Verse 19, as he gives us this third item of his prayer for us, what he wants us to understand lets us see what's going on at the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2. Look what he says. He wants us to know this in verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us, toward us, for us who believe. So he wants us to understand the amazing, unfathomable, boundless power of God that God gives and benefits us through him. You see the three items? Yes, we do see the three items. These are the three prayers, and it gives us an outline of the chapter. Paul had written about the first two in verses 3 through 14, and now goes on in this third area to unfold the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2. The power he wants us to know about is resurrection power. He wants us to know about resurrection power. In verse 20, he gives us a little glimpse of what that resurrection power is like. In verse 20, he says, that power, that great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand or at his right hand in the heavenly places. So we see two elements of this power demonstrated in verse 20. He raised Christ from the dead and it immediately puts us in seating him, but us causing him to ascend through the, the heavens and seats him at the right hand of God. Where? In the heavenly places. Keep that, that phrase in mind. Because you'll remember in verse 3 when we read it, all of our spiritual blessings, where are they located? And who's in the heavenly places at the right hand of God? Jesus is. You get the hint? You get the hint? Later on, in the book of Ephesians in chapter 6. In fact, why don't we take a look there. Later on, Paul is going to tell us something else about this realm where our spiritual blessings reside, where also Christ resides. There's something else that is contending with us, experiencing Christ and enjoying those spiritual blessings. Verse 12 of Ephesians chapter 6, look what it says. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the what? Cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. Where are they? In the heavenly places. And so there's, an, there's a, a contention. There's opposing forces that are coming to keep us from the spiritual blessings which are found in Christ who's at the right hand of God the Father. God has told us that these spiritual blessings are ours and that Christ is there and that we're in him, but there is an opposing force. Back in chapter 1 now, while there is opposition, we must know 
that there is a powerful authoritative ruler. There is opposition, but there's a powerful authoritative ruler. Verse 21. Uh, well, let's get back into verse 20. This power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, he seated him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That's good news. Brothers and sisters, you have an opposition coming against you. But the one who rules over our spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, that is at the right hand of God the Father in the heavenly places, he rules over all of those opposing forces. He's far above. And Paul does a great service to the first generation or first century Christians they were under bondage thinking that if you could name a more powerful God than someone else, then, then you'd be protected and the other person would be thwarted. And so, so here we are. If, if you've got uh, Apollos or, or, or Zeus and I've got this other lesser God and, and we're opposing one another, I'm not going to win this challenge. But when, when Paul tells us about our authority, he is the ruler over all of those other lesser gods all of those other lesser authorities he rules supremely he's above every name that is named you can't come up with a name that's more powerful and better than the name of jesus it's the name above every name at the name of jesus every knee will bow every tongue will confess that jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father Remember, Paul is praying here that we would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Not only is Jesus far above demonic opposing forces, he is over all things and head over the church. That's what it says in verses 22 and 23. Look what it says. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Jesus is not only above all principalities and powers, might and dominion, all those rules. All, he's above all of them. He's also over all things. Everything's under his feet. The last enemy that's to be destroyed is death. That's coming. But he's placed the church underneath his loving Authority. He's placed the church. That's us underneath his loving authority. As we enter into chapter 2, Paul is still letting us know how God's power impacts believers. He describes a number of elements as we turn into chapter 2, and, and it's one after the other. He describes our condition, that we are dead in the trespasses and sin, sins. He describes our sinful actions, it says in the beginning of verse 2, in which you once walked. I have wrote walking, sorry about my mistype there. In, once you, uh, in which you once walked. He describes our influences, following the prince or the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. So he shows our influences, the, the world and satanic authority. He describes our passions. We lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And then he describes our destiny. We're children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see what he's doing here? He, he wants us to know the working of God, the power of God. And he describes raising Christ from the dead and seating him on the right hand, saying Jesus is over all things, including the church. And, and let me tell you who you are. Let me tell you who you are. You're absolutely a disaster. You're, you're hopeless and you're helpless. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You were walking around acting out those trespasses and sins. You were following after the course of the world. You were following after the course of Satan. You were following the desires of your heart and your mind, and, and all of that was just leading you toward destruction. You are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is who God Im impacts, people like that. He describes who we are, 
And then he, he comes with this wallop of a contrast in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In God's kindness and through his power, he took spiritually dead people like us and made us Alive. That is breathtaking. That is God's power toward us who believe. Because it's not because we reached up to God and met him halfway. No. You'll never make it. You'll never make it. They tried time and time again. The Tower of Babel. Cain tried it. People have forever been reaching up toward God to try to please Him, and they'll never meet His hand. It is not until we realize, I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to bring. Simply, to thy cross I cling. I've got sin. I bring sin to the table. I'm spiritually dead. God reaches down and he rescues a broken, rebellious sinner like me. This is God's power toward us who believe. Paul makes it clear that it is in accordance with God's grace that he saves us in verses 8 and 9. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. As we transition to the second half of chapter 2, wow, the second half of chapter 2 is an amazing description of the results of God's powerful working on our behalf. God changed our relationship to himself, to his people, to his promises, and to the, to the hope of the future. Through the sacrificial, bloody death of Jesus Christ, God has brought about an eternal union between God and his people. Look at verses 11 through 13. Therefore, remember. By the way, that's the only command you'll find in the first three chapters of Ephesians. That's an important thing to know. The only thing God tells us to do in the first half of Ephesians is to remember. He says, therefore remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. In other words, using religious terms, they would be very familiar with them, You're called those that are outside of the circumcised people. You're outside of the commonwealth of Israel. You're outside of the people that we accept as religiously proper. Verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. God has done this. God has has brought about this change from alienated from God, from outside of the covenant people, from outside of the promises, from, from outside of the hope, from being without God. He's brought us from outside in. He's brought us in to a relationship with him through Christ, through a bloody sacrifice. As we move a little further, God has eliminated the hostility produced by racial and religious division. God has eliminated the hostility produced by racial and religious division. Verses 14 through 18, look what he says. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. In other words, there were commands about these, this, this wall of hostility that was put up in the temple area. There was a wall. Gentiles out there. The Jews can come in. You stay out. We can go in. This was part of the code. He's abolished it. That he might, in the middle of verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both, both to God, those that are inside and those that are outside, both the Jews and the Gentiles, both the religious crowd and the ir- irreligious crowd. Religion, he's saving them both. That he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby doing what? Come on, help me out. The end of verse 16, doing what? Killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So he has eliminated the hostility, the hostility produced by racial and religious division. Next, he has increasingly drawn us into a deeper relationship with himself. This is beautiful. We could spend two messages just on verses 19 through 23. It's such an, inc- uh, an incredible portion, especially if we go into verse 23 because it's not even there. Through, through verse 22. Verse 19, ready? We're going to make, our, make ourselves a new verse this morning. We're not. We're, we're going to stop at verse 22 like it does. Verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints. So you're not on the outside anymore. You're not, you're not those that, that have a passport, can come in for a little while, but have to go at some point. And you're not one that can only just um, stay around the, the, the outskirts. You actually now have become citizens, citizens with the saints. And he goes on, he says, and members of the household of God. You've been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. I threw the chief in there. Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God has increasingly drawn us into a deeper relationship with himself. He has changed our citizenship, verse 19. He's changed our kinship, our relation, our family lines, in verse 19. And then he has made us, in verses 20 through 22, his workmanship. He's joined us into the work. What he's doing involves us. At one point, we're on the outside. Jesus brings us in through the blood of the cross. We, we're brought in. Oh, so now we're not just uh, resident aliens. Okay, we can stay, but we don't have any privileges. We've actually been made residents, citizens of this place. Yes, great. Ah, better than that. I've adopted you into my family. This is glorious. Now I'm a, a child of God. I'm a son of God. This is great. I, I have all the privileges of a, of a full-blown son of God. And then he says, I'm going to work my work And you are that work. His workmanship. And it gets one step better. He makes us his own residence. God dwells in us. The depth of this work of God's power transitions us from being on the outside looking in to being part of the family, to being part of uh, a perpet- uh, being part of it perpetually and to being the residence of God himself. This is a powerful work and this is an intimate work. This is just a survey of chapters 1 and 2. We just looked quickly through these verses of scripture just to get the, the main gist. Okay, what's being said here? Now I told you that we wanted to see the mission of God in our study this morning and we haven't really touched that so much. So in the next few minutes... We want to take a quick look, again, over the same texts, but we're just going to focus in on little bits of it. And we want to observe the mission of God, the mission of God in the church. Back to chapter 1, please. First of all, we note that God has put us on this mission. The church testifies of God's greatness. 
The church testifies of God's greatness. There's a refrain in this very long Greek sentence. Remember, it was um, God's sovereign purposes and, and, and Jesus' sacrificial uh, provision and then the Spirit's promise. Remember that? Each one of those sections, verses 3 through 6, verses 7 through 12, and verses 13 through 14, have a refrain. And each one of them is almost identical. Look at what it says in verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. Look at verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And at verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so you see the working of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all ascending to the glory of God. This is what the church does. The church testifies of God's greatness, of God's redemptive work. Secondly, as we move further, we notice this mission of the church. At the end of chapter 1, the church displays God's character. The church displays God's character, verses 22 and 23. And he, God, put all things under his, Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, gave all things, or as head over all things to the church, which is his body. And now he describes us as the fullness of him who fills all in all. He's the one that's filling. He's the one that's filling, but whom is he filling? He's filling the church. The church is the fullness of God. Now, that's not completed yet, is it? I wish that we could say that all the time we only do that which is right. I wish that all the time we could say, yes, I walk in the Spirit 24 hours a day and seven days a week, and I never cater to my flesh. I never uh, become irritable. I never become angry. I never become covetousness. I never become gluttonous. I wish I could say all those things. It just would be, would be lying to you, and I can't do that. It would not be right. Uh, we struggle with this, don't we? But God is saying, my church is my display here on earth. We're the fullness of him who fills all in all. He is filling his church through the spirit of God. The fruitful demonstration of the spirit is seen in the church. What does it look like? What what does that fruitful expression look like? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is what God does. When we allow the Spirit to rule in us, the manifestations of the Spirit, just mentioned, are displayed. And when that happens, who's on display? God is. God is on display in a world that does not believe him. Thirdly, as we move a little further, the church demonstrates the good works of God. Chapter 2 and verse 10. It says, for we are, not we might be, not I hope us to be. It says, for we are his, God's, workmanship. The, the word is poema, it's poem, workmanship, craftsmanship, masterpiece. For we are his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This verse says that we are God's workmanship. He has made us for good works. He has laid them out that we should walk in them. This is what you see in the second half of the book of Ephesians. He lays out what that workmanship looks like, what those good works are, are how, to, how they demonstrate themselves. And again, they're very fruitful as opposed to the way that we think as religious. Religious working is much different than the fruit demonstrated in the scripture. Religion looks for uh, tangible, works-based actions. Fruit, on the other hand, has to do with the spirit, the character, and the way in which things are accomplished, not just the activity itself. Activities are easy. 
aren't they? It's like you can go paint a fence. You might not be great at it, but you can do it. But painting a fence with a good attitude is another matter altogether. Painting the fence for the glory of God is another matter altogether. Religion produces action. God's spirit produces motivation. A spirit of gratitude, a spirit of graciousness, a spirit of love. This is what happens. The church demonstrates the good works of God. Let's move a little bit further. The church is no longer enslaved by racial, religious hostility. God has broken down the dividing wall of hostility in verse 14. God was making one new man of the two in soul-making peace in verse 15. And God was and is reconciling both Jew and Gentile through the cross, thereby killing, killing. Guess what, guess what that word killing means, ready? I'm going to tell you the, the real definition of the word killing from the Greek. Ready? It means to kill. That was complicated, wasn't it? Wasn't that super difficult? Do you feel like you've been overwhelmed by that definition this morning? Killing the hostility. Who is the actor in this revolution spoken of in verses 14 to 18? Who's the actor? I'm going to read it, okay? Listen carefully. I want you to answer who the actor is in this revolution. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the laws, the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Who's the actor? If you say God, I'll say yes. If you say Jesus, I'll say yes. Very good. God is the actor. Yet, all these years later, though the subjects of this concept are different, not Jews and Gentiles any longer, there are so many trying to find ways to do what only God can and has done. There is... As much, and probably more, racial tension in this country, and even among evangelical Christians, as has ever been in my short lifetime, this racial and religious divide is getting wider and deeper and more resistant. There's more attention to it, and the more attention this concept gets, the more I see that the things get worse. The solution is not another conference. The solution is to let God do through the gospel what He has already said He has done. The gospel is the great equalizer. And so we believe what Paul said in Galatians 3 and verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't care if you're Asian. I don't care if you're black. I don't care. I don't care. I... Here's what I want to know. Do you know Christ? Has Christ redeemed you? One day, will we sit around the glorious throne of Jesus Christ, singing the song of the redeemed? Will we sing great, uh, the, the greatness and the power and the glory are all to him? Will we sing, worthy are you to receive honor and power and glory forever and ever? Will you be there? then what difference is it what you look like? It doesn't matter whether you're smart or not so. You're funny or not so. You're athletic or not so. If you're black or white or Asian, it doesn't make any difference. And yet, I don't know, this world has gone mad. This world has gone mad. 
and we have to make a big deal about all these things. Now, I, I've never experienced the oppression that any, any, of, any other of you maybe have experienced. I haven't, so I don't know what it's like in that regard. But what I can tell you is this. For me and for this church and what we're trying to do, we don't care what, what your nationality is. Your background is, we want you to know Jesus, to love Jesus, to serve Jesus, and to spend eternity with Jesus. That's what matters. Yes. The church was called to be, not to solve. God has solved this problem. He's the only one that can. Fifthly, the church is the dwelling place of God. The church is the dwelling place of God. We already read the the section. God has come to reside in in us both individually, chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, and in us corporately, chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. That's just a reality. God is doing all of this. This this is the mission of the church from these first two chapters. The mission of the church. Let's list them again. What are they? I've got to find it in my notes. The mission of the church. The church testifies of God's greatness. The church displays God's character. The church demonstrates the good works of God. The church is no longer enslaved by racial, religious hostility. And the church is the dwelling place of God. And I'll remind you, there's one command in chapters 1 through 3. We didn't even get to chapter 3. There's one command in chapters 1 through 3. So God isn't telling us to do this. God has done this. That's good news. Because if, if it were up to us, we'd mess it all up. But God takes care of it himself. These five elements of the mission are pretty obvious, I think, from reading through the text. Now, remember this. Every purpose of God is opposed by Satan and his demonic host. So with our first concept, the church is to praise or to, to testify of God's greatness... So praising God for his redeeming work is counted by Satan in various forms of self-help, self-worth, self-righteousness. Instead of praising God for his salvation, we take credit ourselves or we focus on the messenger rather than the redeemer. Additionally, we find that Satan is at work trying to blind the eyes of unbelievers to prevent the gospel's impact. But we're not talking about a war between Satan and me. We're rather talking about a cosmic battle of Satan opposing God. I have a survey question. I have a question for you. Ready? Who's going to win? You believe that? The Bible says in John chapter 6 and verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose what? Nothing Nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it or him up on the last day. A number of translations have them. Does Satan have a chance to win this battle? No. No. The second concept that we come to is the church is called to display God's character. Satan attempts to focus our attention on more important things than being filled with the Spirit or being filled with the fruits of righteousness that come through Jesus Christ. But we are confident that God will not allow this to prevail. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 tells us this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And Paul prays in the 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, how much? Completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Ladies and gentlemen, everything that God wants to take place in the church, Satan is trying to fight back against. He's trying to fight back against. He doesn't want it to take place because the glory of God seen in the church is an affront to everything that Satan stands for. So he's fighting against it. But fear not. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We come to the third concept. Satan opposes the good works that God has laid out for us by giving us other good things to take their place. 
In chapter 4, God instructs us to put on Christ who was already perfectly righteous and holy. The basis of putting on Christ and, and fulfilling the good works that God has for us is being filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit enables us to fulfill the works that God has laid out before us. So here God says, I have made you my workmanship, and I've laid out for you these good works, and Satan wants us to do these good works, or these bad works. He doesn't care. They can be good, they can be bad, just not the ones God calls you to. We think of Satan as making people into drunkards and addicts, and he'd be fine to do that. We think of Satan making people into materialists and into into people that have sexual immorality issues, and and he'd be glad to do that. He has no problem with really good, good, morally upstanding people either, so long as you don't turn your attention toward Christ and fulfilling the work of Christ. He's fine. He wants us to do other things, and God, over against that, enables us by his spirit as we put on Christ to do those good things. But will that be thwarted? Is God going to be thwarted in his efforts in us? No, he's not. What does that make me want to do? Lord, help me not to be distracted, to set aside that which is good. To move to the fourth one, Satan wants us to focus our attention in all of the ways that we've been enslaved. He wants to divide the church in as many pieces as possible. This has been his modus operandi from the beginning. But as we already discussed, God has already set aside the hostility. He's already accomplished this. The ground at the foot of the cross is what? It's even. It's even. Come. 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 Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. We come to Christ the same way. We receive the same mercy, the same grace, the same love. And at the end of all things, at the, when, when everything wraps up, this is great, we get a picture of the way things will be. Look at chapter 1 again in verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time, the completion of time. So this is the consummation of the ages. To unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. So everyone, black, white, Asian, Czechoslovakian, whatever, every nation, tribe, tongue, and people that knows Christ as Lord will be gathered together in one. Not like the... the, the Gentiles out there and the Jews in here or like some, some div- this uh, unnatural divide of people groups. God has redeemed a people, a people for himself. The fullness of times, all things will be one. We come to the last concept and God wants to make us his residency, his, his dwelling place. The only way Satan can keep God from dwelling in his people is to prevent people from being converted. And let's just see if he can do that. Hmm. What does the Bible say in Romans chapter 8? Well, you're going to see in just a second. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30 says this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are what? Called according to his purpose. Not my purpose, but his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also did what? called and those he called he also did what justified and those whom he justified he also did what why are those in the past tense because it's done has the earth come to its final resting place are we are we done we breathed our last breath yet are there unredeemed people do you think there are going to be some that are still going to be saved well god called them justified already he called them glorified already that's It's pretty intense, isn't it? Because salvation is always, always a work of God. And God's work is never 
never thwarted. We have received a mission from God. It is a mission that will be opposed in many ways, more than we can conceive. But the mission of God for the church is ensured to be completed because its completion depends on him and him alone. Let us join in the work. Let's join in on the winning team. You look at these things, all these things that come forth. You say, this is what the church is about. This is what the church is about. This is what the church is for. And we didn't do anything. He did it. This, that's good. That's the gospel. The gospel is God supplies what God calls for. He's changed our lives. He's transformed our hearts. He's given us a new relationship with him. Our desire is to proclaim that. Proclaim it. Him we proclaim. It's, it's, it's to every nation. It's throughout all creation. What is it? It's, it's the promise of God. It's the promise of God. Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Do you have this relationship? You've come from the outside because of your sin, and, and God has brought you near. He's brought you into his citizenship, citizenship in heaven, well, beyond that, into his family. Yes, that's great. But, but then to dwell in you, to sign his name on you, to say, this one's mine. Has that taken place for you? Whosoever, the Bible says in Romans 10, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus said in in, uh, Matthew chapter 11, come to me, come to me. The Bible says anyone that comes to him, he'll never cast them out. Come, believe. It's the work of God. It's the work of God. I don't have anything to boast in but I still have to hear the, hear the call and come. Hear the call and come. Do I get credit for that? No, he did it. He's, it's glorious. That's great. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't say and you might be saved. It says and you will be saved. Praise God. What a glorious God we have. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you'd help each one of us, whatever our spiritual condition, help us to trust you. I pray, Father, for believers that we would Be desirous of being part of your work, seeing your hand carrying us along and accomplishing your purposes. And I pray for anyone in here that's never trusted Jesus as their Savior, that even today you would open their eyes. Let them see the glory of the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ, who willingly laid down his life as a sacrifice for sin. He took my sin upon him.